Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Chris. Good to talk again. First of all, if I could compliment you on the podcast you did with Nathan yesterday covering rugby. I have to say, as somebody who's not interested in rugby, a lot of it was way over my head. But I think rugby people would find it really interesting in a different perspective. I'd love to have a chat with Nathan at some stage in the future about football, perhaps GAA. I guess Waterford hurling is something Nathan would probably love to talk about. So (laughs) we'll see. But so well, well done on that. It's different. It's good. Today, as usual, a packed agenda. For the last number of podcasts, you've tried, you've tried to get in and talk about chat GPT. We have run out of time on every occasion. So I'm going to start with this agenda item today and I'll introduce it in a second. But there's other, a number of other things I just want to run through very quickly. We've had some UK data releases today. We've had US consumer sentiment. There's sort of interesting stuff happening on commodities and on currency markets at the moment that would warrant a discussion. And and I think the other thing that catches my fancy at the moment is we spoke about Christine Lagarde and her comment on interest rates in her last podcast where she came out saying that the European Central Bank would increase rates by half of 1% at the March meeting. It's interesting since then, at least eight members of the ECB's policymaking body have come out basically saying that the March increase will not be the end of it, that they'll keep going. So I, I, I think we need, we need to talk about that and try and get beat the bonnet there to see exactly what the thought process is. But more of that and on. Chris, as I said, you have been dying to talk about chat GPT for some time now. Just a little bit of background, I guess, where we're coming from on this. 
ChatGPT was created by OpenAI, a Microsoft-backed startup. But over the last few weeks, we've seen Microsoft unveiling an AI-enhanced version of its Bing search engine. And we've also seen Google a, a Google AI-powered chatbot called Bard being introduced. So this space is starting to fill up. It is interesting. I'm, I, I guess as somebody who wouldn't be the most tech savvy person in the world, but I look at this and I think about what does it mean for areas like education, for journalism, for music, uh, for poetry. I mean, would Shakespeare exist in this chat GPT or chatbot type environment. And I also wonder, what does it do to personal creativity? Because I think, you know, a lot of technology over recent years has definitely undermined personal creativity in some ways. And even if you go back to something as fundamental, a technology, and I'm really being a dinosaur here, pocket calculators, as they were called at the time, you know, ultimately, what sort of damage did that do to people's numeracy? So I just wonder... Now, we've moved on, obviously, in dramatic fashion since then. I'm just wondering what does all of this mean for personal creativity? I'll hand over to you and let you off. Thanks, Jim. This technology thing reminds me of when we used to work together, actually, back in the 90s. And I hope you remember that I was an early adopter of the Internet, handed that particular mantle over to you. And I believe and Chris, a- Chris, can I just say in that regard, you certainly did. You set it all up. I was wondering what you were doing inside in your office over at a laptop so much of the time. But um, you left and I, as you say, carried the baton. And when we were launching the Internet site, we went down to Dunleary and stepped into the water there on the beach holding a surfboard. Yes, because back back then, of course, surfing the internet was the the phrase that everybody used. It's not used very much today. There are all sorts of bits of jargon from back then that have fallen by the wayside. The information superhighway, do you remember that one? Certainly do. Yeah, and I was very excited back then. I've always been in a very amateur user sort of way, interested in tech. I've always considered myself an early adopter. I, once upon a time, could code, but the last computer language that I did any serious coding in was something that I suspect doesn't exist anywhere today other than in dusty university ancient seminar rooms, something called Fortran. Oh, yeah. I So I, over the years, I've had a great interest in tech. And back in the 90s, which is when I left the bank that we were both working at the time and handed over the surfboard to you, it was very novel. And people were only just starting to use things like email Mobile phones were sort of getting underway and technology was, was, was very, very different. But I remember the excitement that I felt in subsequent years, actually, when, first of all, of course, the Internet didn't have search engines. There were various devices. There were things called web crawlers. There were bits of software that you could use to try and access the Internet because originally the Internet was designed by the U.S. Department of Defense to try and connect up all of the US military computers such that if one of them, one section of them, was attacked by an enemy, presumably Russia, the rest of them would keep going and in a connected sort of way. And that was something called ARPANET. And as I say, it was created by the US Department of Defense. And then universities got their hands on this and it was gradually made available to the rest of the world. And you dialed up 
things like broadband weren't even in the popular imagination in science fiction, let alone in existence. And you, you had to use your telephone in something called a modem. Vintages of those still exist today, of course. And it was all, all quite primitive. Then search engines came along, and I used one called AltaVista. You might remember that one. I certainly um, do. It was quite a primitive search engine. There, were, there was something called Netscape. That was a browser, one of the first internet browsers. And the excitement that I felt when Google came along uh, was very very uh, reminiscent of the excitement that I feel now with the chat programs that we have. Google was a window, if you like. Other people have used that metaphor a window into the internet. It was a way of gaining access to stuff that was just incredibly powerful. And the things that I realized back then are just as pertinent today. You could use, and you today can use Google in a pretty dumb, stupid way, or you can use it in a super intelligent, super creative way, actually. And this is in part, at least an answer to your question about creativity. I think the internet, Google, and all of the other tools that we use today can be a two-edged sword. They can dumb us down and they can make us very productive and very creative. And it, uh, it can go either way, depending on how we choose to use these tools. If you just use Google to find out the capital of Peru and ask it very simple questions like that, I think it ultimately makes you dumber. If you use it as an extension of your own creative process, and it's quite hard to describe how this works in practice, but just to give you a sense of how I consider the way I use it is that I feel that particularly with respect to A, my written work, it has really, really enhanced the output and the quality of the, the output that I can put, put up, for example, on our own Substack site. A, a pretty dumb way of using Google is the way that doctors fear people coming into their surgery, having Googled their symptoms and come in and tell them, give the doctor their self-diagnosis and the doctor's heart sinks and then has to correct all of the mistakes that that have been made by the dumb user of Google. And that illustrates, I think, a broader point, which is that you've got to use this stuff intelligently. You've got to apply your own knowledge, your own sense of skepticism, Google about what answers it's providing that are right, what answers that are providing that are wrong. When you're reading something that is obviously garbage or obviously really insightful, again, that's a judgment process that really speaks to whether you're using it in a dumb way or an intelligent way. Chat GPT-3, as you say, is, is something created by OpenAI, where AI stands for artificial intelligence. These AI systems in various forms have been around for years now, and there's been much hype and speculation about where they're going to go. But until recently, from an end user like me point of view, they haven't amounted to much. But ChatGPT3, which is a window onto AI, very much in keeping with the way Google was originally a window into the internet, this is a new window. So the first thing I'd say about it is that I agree with all of those articles that have been published in almost, well, actually daily now. You can get two or three very long form pieces from all sorts of publications, bloggers, the Financial Times, The Economist this week has a huge piece on precisely this issue. And uh, it's moving very, very fast, is the first thing that I would say. You mentioned at the top of the show that I've been dying to speak about all of this for some time. And what I am saying today is already different with the passage of time. Things are moving very, very quickly. What do I mean by that? Well, we know that in the last few weeks, Microsoft has invested $10 billion in ChatGPT3, in OpenAI, 
Uh, it's launched something, its own system, its own competitor to ChatGPT this, this week. That's very different to the way in which OpenAI are doing it with ChatGPT3. ChatGPT3 takes the, the, the world's written output, including everything that was on the internet at the end of 2021. So it's already about 13 and a half months old, its stock of knowledge. Nothing from last year, nothing current from the internet is on it. You know, in a way, it's chat GPT three and a half because chat GPT three has existed for a little while now. And what Microsoft have done, we think, is that it's using chat GPT four. We're not sure, um, but we think that it's using the latest iteration of this. And if you think about the way in which it launched this week, it's coming integrated with Bing, which has been much derided, not much used. Uh, Chrome is is still, I think, one of the more popular browsers. Chrome and Safari are the two most popular browsers. But Bing is now going, I think, to, to make a big dent in Google's dominance of search. And integrating into it, ChatGPT4 into its browser, I think, means that the intelligence system isn't static in the way that ChatGPT3 is. It isn't just taking the stock of knowledge at a particular point in time, which gets older as time progresses. I think we, we're looking at an artificial intelligence system that is now hooked up to the to the internet in real time, effectively. So that's progress in the last few weeks. That if I'd been speaking about it when I first wanted to, I wouldn't have been able to say. Baidu in China is also rumored, uh, or is actually trying to do something very very similar. You've mentioned Google, and a lot of the headlines in publications like the FT and the Economist are asking, "Will Microsoft eat Google's lunch?" And I think that there is a very good chance of precisely that happening. I don't know. You can't be sure. But if I was a share trader, I would be long Microsoft and short Google. That's not an investment recommendation. We're not regulated or allowed to do that. But um, I'm very glad that I do personally own the odd Microsoft share or two, because I think it will potentially be one of the winners from this. There's lots of reasons for that. Uh, One reason why it might not be a winner is that the uh, company that ultimately ends up benefiting from this, we might not know yet. It might be a startup that uh, nobody has heard of because anybody can do this. Anybody with a lot of money, and that's an important entry barrier to this market, can get in on this uh, because, as I say, there are lots of different artificial intelligence systems out there. GPT is a a large language model, as it's called. It it works out on the basis of predictive models, what word is going to come next. It learns from the user, uh, the questions that it's asked and the answers that it is expected to give. It can be corrected. It can come up with absolute nonsense. It can come up with the wrong answers. It can come up with stuff that is just complete rubbish, but it can be very, very useful. I've used it already in two presentations. It doesn't produce PowerPoint slides, thank God, death by PowerPoint, but it can produce ideas to put on slides. And you and I, in a presentation to an industry group only last week, used some of its suggestions by way of illustration of what it can do. A lot of people are worried by these systems, um, not least because they make mistakes. But you might ask uh, some future AI system, for example, to rid the world of COVID or some other disease and the way in which the AI system might get rid of rid of disease in general or COVID in particular, ask it to make sure that nobody gets cancer anymore. One way of achieving that, of course, is to kill everybody. 
and to eliminate the human race. That way, nobody ever dies of cancer again. So people have all sorts of fears and scares about the way in which this is going to go, the way in which it is going to be used. I choose to believe that it is going to be incredibly productivity enhancing. I think it is going to be really, really creativity enhancing because I know that's what Google has done for many people. And I think this is going to be the next extension of that. It almost is like Google become, if, if you allow Google to become an extension of your creative process, an extension, this might sound a bit pretentious, but if you allow Google to become an extension of your own thinking process, of your own mind, of your own brain, if that's the way you think about this, this is the way in which I think productivity is enhanced. It was always said that technology, it took years for the internet, for, for, for computers generally to um, show up in the productivity statistics. There's a famous Nobel Prize winning economist called Robert Solow who said that he could see computers everywhere, but in the productivity statistics. Eventually it did. But the one thing that I think disturbs me a little bit, worries me a little bit about all of this, is that it, might, it may or may not enhance overall productivity in the economy, but it is going to enhance somebody's productivity. It's going to create a lot of winners. Now, whether it does it in a net-net overall sense depends on whether it creates more winners than losers. It's going to create both. I think, for example, that Microsoft could be a big winner and Google could be a big loser. Um, and if that's all it does, Microsoft wins, Google loses, net-net, it's a wash. And, and the overall economy isn't really affected by this. GDP figures won't be that affected. But Microsoft share price and Google share price will be. And a lot of people will be a lot richer and a lot of people will be a lot poorer. And that's the way our societies have gone of late in that we've created a lot of winners and a lot of losers, but net-net not enough winners. So I, I remain to be convinced that this will definitely produce a lot of winners. But I am optimistic, Jim. I do. Chris, think... Yeah, go sorry. On. Go on. I was just going to ask you about the implications for employment. We've we've spoken for some time or has been spoken about for some time about the jobs of the future and those jobs that could become obsolete. Is it possible using chatbots that we can, I key in my data on my earnings and I ask this program to do my tax return for me? And obviously it will delve into Irish tax laws and so on and deliver my tax return. So is the accountant, for example, going to become extinct? Or what other occupations? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I think the basic accountancy function will be, you can or, people are already using ChatGPT3 to do things much more sophisticated than tax returns. They're using it to do stock market analysis. 
so that when a company reports its earnings, that it's producing reports and analysis of these earnings far quicker than any human analyst is doing. That is happening as we speak. So, you so can is eat... the day of the analyst gone? Well, I think the day the the way in which the analyst did his or her job in the past is going to disappear. It hasn't gone yet, but it will disappear. New things will come on, come along. The optimist in me can only say that just as 20, 30, 40 years ago, our parents couldn't possibly be imagined that we would be doing what we're doing now, that the jobs of today were unimaginable a generation ago. And that's true today looking forward. We don't know what our kids and grandkids are going to be doing a generation hence as a result of this. I think that, the again, I think the people who will get jobs will be the people who are able to use this in that creative way rather than in the dumb way. But I think the more routine your job is, the more it is under threat by, by this, this technology. We've heard for so many years now that technology is coming for our jobs. And to a certain extent, to a considerable extent, actually, technology has come for a lot of jobs. Just ask anybody in any kind of unskilled manufacturing operation and what's happened to unskilled manual work. A lot of it has disappeared. Car manufacturing is a prime example of what I'm talking about here. We still make globally more cars than ever, but with fewer and fewer people. I know somebody that works in a car plant in North America that has recently retired. And when he started work in that plant, 16,000 people were employed. And the day he left, they were producing more cars than they were when he started, but there were a thousand people there. Um, that's the way this thing goes. And what we have done with this revolution in technology that has enhanced sectoral productivity rather than overall productivity for the economy is we've allowed it to create more winners, more losers than winners. And that's why we have the poisonous politics of today is that we didn't actually pay attention, enough attention to the losers. And one of the ways in which it's so important to think about this new technology is that is to realize there are going to be lots of winners and losers. And how are we going to deal with the losers much better than we have in the past? Because if we want our politics to continue to deteriorate, just keep on doing what we did in the past and allow the winners to take all of the gains. If we don't share the gains from this new technology better than we have shared the gains from technology up till now, then I think we will remain in deep political trouble. And indeed, it will get worse because you, you will get people like Donald Trump and Nigel Farage and co standing up and saying, I feel your pain and I know how to cure it. I know how to take your pain away. That's the big political lie, of course, of the populist. If you want to be in that winning camp, you're going to have to get to grips with this stuff and figure out for yourself, first of all, how this technology is going to enhance your own productivity and your own creativity. If it represents a threat to your job, you're going to have to realize that just as we've got two old men on this podcast today who are reinventing themselves as broadcasters, as, as podcasters, using new technology to do new things. That's what this podcast is about. We are reinventing it ourselves. We never imagined for a second, Jim, when we were working together in the 90s, that all these decades later that we would be doing this. But we're open-minded enough, we're savvy enough to have learned how to use this podcasting software, this new technology, to produce an income stream. It isn't much of a one, it has to be said, not yet anyway. But I am determined to become the next Rupert Murdoch of the UK 
media space with this empire, this podcasting, the other hand empire that we are building. And that's how people are going to have to duck and dive going forward. I think that it's going to be that transformative. I think it's going to be as transformative as Google was. Remember just how much disruption Google produced for uh, sectors. Uh, Travel agents disappeared. Newspapers were completely eviscerated, almost. Anything, anybody that acted as an intermediary in the economy was often uh, disintermediated by the internet in general, Google in particular. Ironically, I think that all of this is going to disintermediate Google as well, or at least is, is a real threat unless Google can come up with it. Notice that what happened this week when Google introduced its own artificial intelligence system is that in the presentation when it was launching its own version of ChatGPT3, it got a question wrong. I mentioned that these systems do get things wrong. And the moment that it got got it wrong, Google's share price fell by about 10%. I think the penny is starting to drop. Um, Google's share price certainly is. And I think that there is more of that to continue. If there's one thing I want to impress on you, Jim, and and any listeners, with all of this debate about the quality of of the AI systems that these chatbots are overlaid on that represent a window for, it's that the, these systems are today as bad as they are ever going to be. They're only going to get better. And they are getting better on a daily basis. So this stuff is really exciting. I think it's actually more exciting than the day I discovered Google. I think it could be as transformative as the steam engine, as the discovery of electricity. That's how big a deal I think it is. With all of the caveats that I've mentioned, all of the fears over the, the, the dark side of these systems about what they might actually do. I think that, that provided we use them appropriately, and, we, we, and that includes regulation to stop these systems from taking over, from killing us all, from bad actors using them in the ways that we can imagine. For example, just imagine how the, the Eastern European despots like Orban or Xi Jinping in China Imagine what they're going to do with these systems for command and control, not just of their economy, but of their societies and of their people. So, yes, there is a downside. But I think that we you know, are contributing in a tiny way to the debate here. But it, it, don't underestimate the power and where the, of these systems and where they can, can take us next. I think that we are at the start just the start of a revolution. I can see lots of nutrition here for the conspiracy theorists, to be perfectly honest. Chris, if I um, sit down this weekend and ask it to write a book for me on populism in Ireland, I present it to a publisher next week. Well, I I, I doubt that you would get something of a sufficient quality that a publisher would say yes. There's already software being written to check uh, at university level. I think somebody from Princeton has already written a piece of software to check whether an essay or a piece of work has been written by a chatbot. So that's going to take care, we think, of the plagiarism point. But this does make life very difficult for teachers, for lecturers. Uh, It's this chatbot has already passed in a just about sort of way, a ju- uh, just above the pass mark, if you like, sort of way for um, graduate level legal exams and other graduate level entry uh, examinations. So it, it is being used in that way, at least um, to test it. I, do, I hope it's not being used in, in anger. But yeah, that it, it's going to represent challenges in, in that way. But, if, but the, what I'm saying, Jim, is, is if you wanted to write that book on populism, for Ireland, and I think it'd be a fantastic idea, by the way, to write a book about populism in Ireland and the threat that it poses. 
then you would start interrogating this chatbot, either um, open AIs. Um, you would use it as part of the creative process for you to end up writing your book. And my optimism, if you like, my positive take on it would be that you would end up with a much better book than if Jim Power had just gone to a library. Yeah. And so it, it becomes an extension of what you're doing rather than a substitution. You, for what you, you can certainly see it making an, an enormous contribution to research at, at every level, particularly at academic level. Yeah, I remember so that the penny drop for me about the internet, going back to that conversation we were having about the 90s when I got excited about the internet and the way in which our, our employer could use it. I was reading about a PhD researcher who had just finished a PhD. I can't remember the exact subject, but it was something to do with classical Greek literature and um, the, the ancient Greeks. And this woman was somewhat plaintively saying that what's just taken me the last four years of my life, I could now do in two weeks because I now have access to the internet rather than having to travel to Greece and, and delve through all the ancient texts. So, and so when, when you see something like that, that it can be productivity enhancing in that particular way, you realize that certainly in certain ways, it can be a fantastic tool. Yeah, if you, if you remember when we worked together, we frequently traveled to the United States, to Europe, um, you know, visited the Bundesbank many times in Frankfurt back in the day. We spent a week going around talking to economists, in investment banks, in central banks, in treasury departments, etc. Um, and suddenly, with the advent of the Internet, we were able to access all of this research it seriously enhanced our productivity and also uh, reduced uh, the expense of doing our job dramatically because we didn't have to travel as much. So, yeah, you can see these sorts of um, developments having massive, massive impacts on productivity. F fascinating, Chris. I feel this is something that we will obviously be revisiting on a frequent basis um, into the future. So uh, thanks for that discussion. Just to in the time we've remaining, just wrap up on some of the economic news out there. We got the revised data from the United Kingdom this morning showing that the economy fell by 0.2% in the third quarter and was flat in the fourth quarter. So technically, a recession was avoided by the skin of its teeth. So we, we now wait to see what the first quarter delivers. Um, in the United States today, we saw the Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey at a 13-month high. So U.S. consumers clearly feeling a bit more confident about the future. And in fact, that is being reflected in a repricing of the dollar in recent days. Um, the dollar is at 106.80 this afternoon as we speak. Um, it was going through 110 a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we had a podcast where we were talking about the possibility of 120. So there has certainly been a bit of a, a re-evaluation of the US vis-a-vis -vis Europe at the moment. And on commodity markets, there's also quite a bit happening. Brent crude oil trading over $86 a barrel uh, today. In the middle of December, that was exactly $10 lower at 76 So oil prices starting to edge up again. And I assume that is largely down to two things. One is the more optimistic assessment of global economic prospects in 23 and consequently demand for oil and also the reopening of the Chinese economy and the impact that's going to have on global oil demand. But also there is stuff going on in Russia 
uh, you know, the Russians are going to cut oil output in response to the price caps that have been put on. So there is a, an energy tit for tat battle going on at the moment. But it's, it's, it's interesting. But the final piece for a hand back to you is what's happening um, in relation to the European interest rate situation. You know, as we know, last week, the European Central Bank delivered a half percent increase. And Christine Lagarde came out saying that at the March meeting, rates will be increased by another half percent. And as I mentioned in the introduction, at least eight policymakers in the European Central Bank Policymaking Council, they've come out with comments suggesting that rates will rise beyond that half percent increase, which is now penciled in for March. And one comment or one quote from one official really struck me. He said that the risk of over-tightening seems dwarfed by the risk of doing too little. So it's clear the European Central Bank is intent on making a major policy mistake. And at the same time, uh, and I guess this is reflecting the nature of that mistake, um, every piece of data we're getting for December in the euro area is suggesting weakness. Uh, Retail sales fell sharply in December, and I saw one commentator describing him as having plummeted. Industrial production data for December is due out next week. It is expected to show a significant contraction. So, you know, the Eurozone economy, which we I think we have argued for quite some time, the Eurozone was not characterized by excess demand. So consequently, increasing interest rates isn't exactly the most appropriate response, but it's the only one that central bankers understand. But it keeps going and uh, the data is getting weaker. So it's, uh, I, I have to say, I am kind of fascinated by those eight or nine quotes or comments I've come across from various ECB policymakers, uh, their intent on doing it. Yeah, I think they must partly hope, I I would assume, that their open mouth operations, as we call them, um, will do the job of tightening for them, that they won't actually have to raise rates by as much as we fear, or at least as much as their rhetoric would suggest, and that people's behaviour will change. There is too much strength in the world economy. There may not be much in the European economy, but the US is clearly stronger than we thought. Um, Even the UK's numbers, weak though they were, were not as weak as feared. And there are forecasts out now that suggest that the UK will just about avoid recession this year. So there's a wee bit more economic strength out there for them to worry about. But as you say, I think they, they are making a mistake. Uh, But as as you also say, markets have staged quite a big reversal. U.S. equity markets are now going down, actually, as a result of this economic strength that we have talked about there. Uh, And the Federal Reserve, it clearly is now betting that interest rates um, will, or they're trying to signal that interest rates will continue to rise. And if you look at the markets, the markets are now flirting with the idea that U.S. rates might actually have to go all the way to 6% rather than the 5% that they previously thought. That's current, that could change, but that's where we are at the moment. And if you think that interest rates are going to be having to go up in the States, at least, if not Europe as well, clearly there's a bigger case in the US for higher rates than Europe. I think the market simply don't believe that the ECB is capable of making the mistake that we both think it's capable of. So that means that interest rates are likely to rise in the United States relative to Europe. So the dollar starts going up again. That's a big reversal from the trend that had been established over previous weeks. The stronger dollar and higher US interest rates are not good for emerging markets. Emerging markets had been on a tear, both their equities and their debt. That has reversed a little, not not 
a lot, but it has reversed a bit. So things are all over the place at the moment in, in terms of both the economic data and financial markets. The markets remain obsessed with US interest rate policy. They were flirting with the idea that the, the Fed wasn't uh, going to be having to tighten much further. They're now flirting with the idea that that was wrong. So therefore, equities are under pressure. So as a result, the little bit of money, the tiny, trivial amount of money that I use to uh, express a view when it comes to these sorts of things has meant, and again, this is not an investment recommendation. It's simply a narration of what I've actually done. Today, uh, I had been playing that equity rally through the fourth quarter of last year. I bought too early, but nevertheless got into the money just a little bit. I've taken that off the table now. I've gone back to cash. So I do think that markets are in for a bit of a rockier ride over the next while. I think that what actually will happen is that the US economy will not continue to show the strength that we've seen recently. I think that inflation on both sides of the Atlantic is going to come down. The wild card, as you say, is energy. And I must admit to being worried, and this contributed to my decision to sell my equities, that the oil price is now showing signs of strengthening again, which is not good news for the inflation outlook. Certainly, overall inflation is, is not going to be helped by higher energy prices. The natural gas price has come down in, in Europe, but it has stopped coming down, you might have noticed. So net-net, I think that it's all very confusing. The, the news isn't great. So I think that we are right now in for a bit of a rocky ride. Okay. Listen, Chris, thank you very much. We'll wrap it there. Um, a couple of things I, I wanted to ask you earlier in the week and forgot to. Uh, who were you shouting from Cardiff last Sunday, Saturday? Well, I can be studiously neutral, having supported Ireland and Leinster. I was Leinster season ticket holder for many years. Oh, God. Uh, uh, <laughs> displaying your, your love of rugby there, Jim. Uh, no, monster, monster. I was there as, as, as more or less a neutral. But I have to say that, you know, as somebody that grew up in Wales but lived in Ireland for a long time, I knew a lot more about the, the Irish side than I did about the Welsh side. I would have been happy with, with either result. So um, I was with my two Irish sons at the game. So I was very happy for them. Excellent. Tomorrow, Ireland, France. Yeah, I'm worried about that one. I, yeah. really, I really am. Mm. And uh, on that podcast that you kindly uh, said some nice words about at the top of the show, my sports journalist son is also worried that the French are just going to be too powerful for, for Ireland. But we, th we both think it'll be a very close game. Yeah, I, I was fascinated by his comments. And as I say, I'm, I'm pretty ignorant in all of this, but he was he was expressing the view that where the skill levels of two sides are pretty even, that physical strength tends to win out in the end. So that's yeah. one to win. Um, for, for your information, Chris, I'll be in Port Leash tomorrow evening watching Waterford Hurlers play Leash. And what's that punishment for, Jim? <laughs> Something I did in past life, Chris. I'm a, cute, I'm a Queen's Park Rangers supporter as well, you know, so. But also Arsenal. Like me, you're an Arsenal well, Absolutely. I, lo I love Arsenal. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, have a great weekend. Thanks very much. Uh, look forward to talking early next week. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, Please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.